back and what is going on yo welcome back to conspiracy fears and mysteries and this is the month of halloween my favorite month this has to be my favorite month besides christmas because you know god love christmas but halloween means a lot to me because i just always loved halloween since i was a kid man how's everybody doing how's everybody doing i've been I've been on a hiatus for a while. I know I haven't posted anything. And on my last post, I said that I was going to, I said, oh, I'll be gone for a week and yada, yada. And it's been about three or four weeks, almost a month, I think, that I haven't posted anything. I did go on Get Vocal and go follow me on Get Vocal. And on Get Vocal, I believe it's the same. Uh, get, get Vocal, if you don't have it, go ahead and download it. I'm not sponsored by them, but go ahead and download it. It's just a... um. What it is is just a platform where people go live and they do live streams on there. And, I'm, and they actually have a true crime li live stream, which I know I do conspiracy and all other stuff. But I'll talk about everything on there. But I did one yesterday and it was on Listverse. And I'm and I get I love that website. Excuse me. I'm moving the table a little bit. I'm recording on the iPad today. But I do like Listverse um, because I like those lists that. um those like top 10 and all those all those crazy crazy lists that they have they kind of gets to the point it gives you and you know it just gives you a bunch of different things to, to to think about now from those lists of those top 10s of whatever it is whether it's top 10 or you know serial killers and i ain't saying top i'm not putting them on top but you know or top 10 hauntings or ufo landings or top 10 conspiracies from from there, I would normally like break it down and I'll grab one and I'll dig deeper into that. And then I'll do an episode on that if people ask for it. And of course, somebody wants to write me while I'm doing a podcast. But anyway, so today we're looking I'm looking at the top 10. Um, and actually, before I even get in, before I even get in, uh, if you guys ever watch Creep Show or if you're into horror and most people that are into true crime usually like horror. But if you're into that stuff, they do. They have a new um, creep show, like a updated, like a they read, not redid it, but they have a new one which follows the anthology creep show from from the movies back in the day. They had creep show one, creep show two, and I saw creep show three, but I don't know if it has really. I don't know what happened with that because I never even heard of it, but I saw what it, it was like there. It's older too, but they have a show on, it's on Shudder. You can get Shudder through your Amazon. I'm not sponsored. I'm just letting you guys know. But anyway, let's get to what we're going to talk about today. The, the top 10, this is from listverse.com and you can go find them, listverse. But I found this very interesting. Um, As soon as I saw the title, I said, oh, I got to see what it is. And I'm going to be reading this off to you because I haven't read it. I just, I'm, gonna be re I'm sharing it as I got it. And it's 10 sinister Halloween horror stories that really happened. 10 sinister stories that really happened. And this is written by Eli Nixon from this verse. So let's begin. We don't put much stock in Halloween anymore. It's fun for kids and they find time to snuggle up with it for a scary movie. But the truly scary aspects climbed 
on a ship with our silliest superstitions and sailed for Valinor long ago. I don't know where Valinor is. But witches and ghouls aren't the only haunts of Hollow's Eve. Some knights will make monsters of men, and whether by chance or design, these monsters chose the Halloween season to bring their evil to light. So number 10, we have Martha Moxley. Now, Greenwich, Connecticut is in a place where you expect to find a body. It's one of the wealthiest burgs in the, in the United States, the place where Bush Sr. played as a boy and where a solid dozen U.S. senators are raising their own kids. But in 1975, amid the sprawling estates, multi-million dollar mansions, and manicured lawns, the blood-soaked body of a 15-year-old Martha Moxley was found on a cold Halloween morning. The discovery shocked the town. Martha had been beaten up with a golf club so hard that the club had shattered, and then she'd been stabbed in the neck with one of the jagged pieces. Then her killer had dragged her 24 meters or 80 feet and dropped her off in her own backyard. If that's not, if that doesn't add a creep factor, I don't know what does. All eyes soon turned to 17-year-old Tommy Skackle, the nephew of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. According to reports, I think I remember the story. According to reports, Martha had been out with her friends the night before and they had gone to a party at the Skackle's house. Tommy had left the party with Martha late at night, but she never made it home, even though their houses were only about 130 meters away. Although the police had their suspects, they never made a conviction, and the gruesome Greenwich Halloween murder remained a cold case for over 16 years. In 1991, renewed investigations into the Moxley case brought it back into the, into the public light. But it wasn't until 1998, 23 years after the young girl's murder, that her killer was named Michael Skackle, Tommy's brother. According to novelist Dominic Dune, Michael had once climbed a tree outside Martha's window and masturbated. He was infatuated with the girl. And in 2002, Michael Skackle was finally convicted of the murder by a grand jury. But the story doesn't end there. Michael Skackle was later granted an appeal. And in 2013, he was released from prison on bail. Look, and you got to understand uh, where this is coming from. This is, uh, this is, they said, yeah, this is nephew of Senator Robert F. Kennedy. The Kennedys have a history of craziness, okay? The Kennedys, yeah, I guess he was, John F. Kennedy was a good president, but the, that's not, I'm not talking about the politics, I'm talking about the power of this family. A lot of these powerful political families get away literally with murder a lot. They get away with a lot of stuff. Um, and that's crazy. That's crazy. They, they have their demons, <laughs> and but they get away with them because of their positions. Number nine, Peter Fabiano. Peter and Betty Fabiano were just getting ready for bed when they heard the doorbell ring on October 31st, 1957. It was after 11 p.m., a little late for trick-or-treaters, but Peter reluctantly headed downstairs and grabbed the candy bowl. It was Halloween, of course. What, what was one more kid? But when he opened the door, Peter got the shock of his life. On his doorstep stood a grown woman in blue jeans and a cheap mask pointing the bottom of a paper bag at his chest. Upstairs, Betty Fabiana heard a loud pop, then the screech of tires as a car sped off outside. 
Racing downstairs, she found her husband on the floor in front of the open door, gasping for breath, blood pouring from a gaping wound on his chest, and he was dead before they reached the hospital. Police were mystified. Peter Fabiano worked as a hairdresser in the San Fernando Valley. He had no enemies, at least none who would want to kill him. But the, but the deeper they looked into the crime, the more twisted it all seemed. Two weeks after the cold-blooded killing, police nabbed Joanne Rabble, a 40-year-old who'd once been employed at one of the Peter's salons. And for some reason, she was lying about being out the night of Peter's death. But not all liars moonlight as killers, and the cops had to let Joan Rabble go for the lack of evidence. Then, a month later, an anonymous caller directed police to a rented locker in an area department store. Inside, they found a thirty-eight revolver, which ballistics matched to the bullet that they had found lodged under Peter Fabiano's heart. Now, the locker wasn't being rented by Joanne Rabble. However, it belonged to a woman named Golden Pizer, who worked at a local children's hospital and had no connections with the Fabiano family. The clues were there, but none of them made sense until Pizer began to confess. Golden Pizer and Joanne Rabble, it turned out, were lovers. For months, Rabble told her about a man named Peter Fabiano, whom the latter called evil and vile. Rebel Rabble regaled Pizer with sickening stories of Fabiano and the way he abused his wife and before long, Pizer began to hate this man she never met. She agreed to help Rabble kill him. With Rabble's money, Pizer brought a gun. Rabble drove it to Fiber's house. And Pizer, shaking so hard she had to use both hands to steady the revolver, put a bullet in Peter Faber's chest when he opened the door to give her a piece of candy. But why would Joan Rabble spend months seeding this idea of hate in Pizer's head? Simply put, Rabble had been sleeping with Peter's wife. What? Okay, and it seemed she just wanted to get him out of the way. In their trials, Rabble pleaded not guilty, and Pizer pleaded insanity. Both agreed to a plea deal for second-degree murder and life in prison. Idiots. You fucking dumb-ass idiots. But anyway, um, you see how people can manip... See how easy... It's easy to manipulate people to believe something. It's easy. You see it in anything. See it in politics. You see it in um. You see it uh in in couples with in relationships, easy to manipulate. See it in, you see it in everything and everything. Number eight, Patricia Ward. Oh, this has a little news thing. Let's hear it. A little, a news a news uh. A little video. decapitated in the streets identified as 66 year old professor patricia ward wabc reporter nj burkett tweeting this picture of the victim earlier today police are investigating it as a murder suicide after they say her son later jumped in front of a long island railroad train killing himself ward was discovered by witnesses tuesday night passing by in farmingdale a town on long island in new york city one witness, Jack Imperial from Queens, told the New York Daily News he thought it was a Halloween hoax, saying, quote, 
The head was across the street. I've seen some gruesome stuff in my years of living, but nothing like this. Witnesses tell police the 30-year-old son dragged his mother out of their Farmingdale apartment and kicked her head across the street. Farmingdale Police Detective Michael Bitsko said the son allegedly had a drug problem, but they don't know if he was under the influence of anything at the time of the murder. Don't forget to check out more Newsbreaker videos at newsbreaker.tv. Nope, that's it. Oh, my God. <laughs> so the son, that's not funny, but dang. He kicked, okay, so let's read what it said. Hopefully it's not the same thing. In 2014, just days before Halloween, witnesses saw a man drag a decapitated body out of a Long Island apartment. He laid the body in the streets, then kicked the head to the opposite curb. They had all the signs of a macabre Halloween prank, and that's what everyone thought it was. For a while, nobody did anything about it. One witness said the whole thing looked fake. The horrifying truth came to light when a good Samaritan tried to move the corpse out of the middle of the street and realized that it was a real body. It didn't take long for a police to deduce that the body belonged to Patricia Ward, like you heard in the video, 66-year-old professor at New York's Farmingdale State College. Even before discovering her body, police had received another call about another dead Ward. This one had been run over by a train about a mile down the road. Soon the tragic details of the murder came to light and Patricia's son, 35-year-old Derek Ward, had a history of mental illness, but he seemed to be on the road to recovery when he moved into the small Farmingdale apartment with his mother. Then for some reason he snapped, beheaded his mother, dragged her body out to the, of the apartment, down the stairs, and through the front door of the building. I don't know how nobody saw this, but only like people. In the, it, it took so long for somebody to see this, but anyway... After leaving the body in the streets, he calmly walked away and leaped in front of the oncoming train. As to why he did it, nobody knows. Do you know the level of fortitude or or uh, like the, the the strength that it takes to decapitate somebody? I'm not, I'm not talking about just physical. I'm talking about mental. But he did have mental illness, and that is a big issue, mental illness. Um, and that we need to take more serious uh, and not just think that, you know, oh, we just, it's just mental health and whatever. And man, it's crazy. So the East Coast rapist is number seven. And on the night of October 31st, 2009, three teenage girls were hauling bags of candy through a quiet suburb in Woodbridge, Virginia. Just north of them in Arlington County, a man named Aaron Thomas was climbing into a yellow Chrysler 300 sedan. In his pocket was a cigarette lighter shaped like a 9mm semi-automatic. Thomas once lived in Woodbridge. He shared a small fixer-upper with a woman named Joel Hicks and her, and her young son, whom he raised as his own. The relationship didn't work out, but they remained friends. In fact, Hicks was the reason Thomas was in town that Halloween he was helping her move out, and it was her car he was driving. Thomas set out that night to buy a new shirt, but he soon found himself cruising by their old house, lost in the memories. He spotted three young teenage girls trick-or-treating. It was raining. It was getting dark. The girls were alone. Thomas parked the car before the girls knew it. Uh, before the girls knew what was happening, Thomas was pointing the fake gun at them and forcing them into a wooded back lot behind a CVS pharmacy where a steep slope took them to the bottom of a rain-drenched ravine. Thomas ordered the girls to line up and lie down. One of the girls later said, I was praying. I thought that was it. 
I thought I was going to die. Another girl managed to send a heart, a heart-stopping text to her mother. Man raping my friend in the woods behind CVS call 911. Wait, what year was this? Oh, 2009. Okay. Every time I read this, I keep thinking, wait, did they have text back then? Um, okay. Then she dialed 911 herself. Thomas was too busy to notice. Police converged on the site within minutes. Sending Thomas fleeing into the woods, he tossed the lighter away, doubled back in a wide circle, and then calmly walked past dozens of police officers to his car in the CVS parking lot and drove away. Wow. From 97 to 2009, families in New England had a reason to lock their doors at night, although they didn't know it. For those 12 years, Aaron Thomas, soon to be dubbed the East Coast Rapist, had been abducting and raping women from Virginia to Rhode Island. The Halloween abduction sparked a massive manhunt, but it still took two more years and an anonymous tip before police tracked Thomas down. They were able to link his DNA to 13 unsolved cases. Although he's admitted to raping many more than that, in 2013, Aaron Thomas received three life terms plus 80 years, and in 2015, he pleaded guilty to three more charges and received three additional life sentences. Why even bother? Three additional life sentences. I'll be like, how about you're only getting two meals a day now instead of three? Then if he gets more, you okay, you're only getting one meal a day. You're only getting half a meal. You know, I, I'm sure. Listen, I don't know. I Listen, if, if you're a, if you're a, if you're one of these sympathizers, okay, I worked in prison and jails. Um, I never abused anyone, but I'm just saying this guy was raping women left and right. These guys was taking the innocence of girls, young girls. Um, this guy was just violating was, you know what I mean? And if you're one of these people, oh no, we can't, we can't take away. No, he's going to prison. That's enough. We can't take away his rights. You're part of the problem. Look in the mirror and be, be like, man, I'm part of the problem. Anyway, number six, six, number six, the Lisk family. I think this one I know. So the Lisk family, this one has a video also. Let's see how long this is over here. You can hear this. Uh-oh, new detail. Lisk family. New details now on the man accused of murdering three family members. He faced a judge this morning in Ottawa County Common Pleas Court. William Liskey is charged with six counts of aggravated murder. Liskey will be evaluated within the next 30 days to see if he's competent to stand trial. The 24-year-old's accused of murdering his father, William Liskey, his stepmother, Susan, and her son, Derek. All three were found dead in their Jerusalem Road home on Halloween. If Liskey is found guilty on all the charges, he could face the death penalty. He's behind bars right now on $3 million bond. I can never understand. Um, there's, like, I, I've seen, and you know, look, I'm not saying, like, oh, we're just going to go around killing everybody or anything crazy like that. But, you know, there's some people, you know, that, just like, man, there's, like, I just, you're talking about people killing kids and families and whole families, mothers. um, And I hear, I read these comments, man. I hate to bring this podcast to that, but I read these comments sometimes from people, especially in other countries. Oh, you Americans, you're, you're quick to kill someone um, when they do something wrong. Well, did you see what they did? did you know. We're not killing the people who, you know, 
stole some food, you know, stole some oranges or something because they were hungry. We're not killing people who sang too long in the freaking, or is it not not too long? Sang too loud in the in the uh, in the what do you call it? Damn, the church choir. All right. Uh, these are people who did some serious stuff. These are people who, if 99% of those people that are making those comments, like, oh my God, I can't believe you're doing that. Why would you treat them so bad? 99% of those people, if something, God forbid, I don't wish this upon anyone, would happen to anyone that they cared about, would be the first ones enraged. And if you left them alone in the room with that person, they'd probably try to hurt them. You know what I mean? Try to kill them or something, you know? you got. I mean, I'm not saying give in to your anger. I'm ne- definitely not on that. Um, I'm not saying go hurt anybody. I'm just saying, you know, there's a time when you, you just, I mean, this guy. Yes, I know. Who are we to say who lives and who dies? I get that. But, man, if we got the opportunity... You know, and this is why I think people keep doing it. Like, well, you know, there's going to be people out there who are going to save me from the death penalty. So I'm not worried about it. You know, I don't know. It's one of those things that go back and forth. I'm not going to sit here and argue about that. But it just pisses me off to hear innocent people getting hurt. It doesn't make sense. And it just shouldn't happen. So anyway, number. So this is the Lisk family. And like he did on uh, number six. On oh, this is number, yeah, number six. Like he did on any given Sunday, Devon Griffin woke up early to go to church on October 31st, 2010. He was staying the weekend at his father's house. And before church, he stopped by his mother's to grab a shirt to change into. It was about 9.30 a.m. when the only person he saw around was his stepmother, B.J. Lisk. Uh, his, his, I'm sorry, his stepbrother, B.J. Lisk. B.J. greeted Devin cheerfully and asked how long he'd been gone. He'd be gone. A question that struck Devin as odd since he and BJ didn't get along and never talked much. After church, Devin went back home and played video games for a while. BJ seemed to have disappeared and the house was uncharacteristically quiet. Figuring he ought to go wake everyone up, it was 1.30 p.m. by then. Devin went to the master bedroom and saw that his mother was still in bed and with her husband, William Lisk. The blanket was over their heads as if they were trying to shut out the afternoon light. Devin started talking, hoping to rouse her, and when he got no response, he pulled the cover. Police were all over the house within hours. Devin had inad- inadvertently uncovered a murder scene. Sometime during the that morning, 24-year-old William Lisk Jr., whom the family called BJ, had shot his father in the head five times. Wow. Then he turned the gun on his stepmom before beating his stepbrother to death with a claw hammer. Jesus. Oh, my God. It's one thing to shoot someone. It's another thing to go personal with a claw hammer, with anything that you got to get so close to them. That's a special kind of hate. That I mean, death is death, but I'm just saying. The latter were, the latter two were Devin's mother and brother. BJ was picked up by police at the family cabin and taken into custody. He was found guilty of the three murders and sentenced to life in prison. Um, I was watching a video yesterday of, uh, not a video, but it was a, uh, episode of, of, um, your worst nightmare. It's a show called your worst nightmare. It's a true crime show. 
And I believe, I, I don't think this sounds just like the episode I saw last night. Only, let me see, it says here that he was found at the family cabin. And I think this was the same story. Um, only, of course, they, you know, they changed some things for dramatic effect and for, you know, for whatever purposes, maybe to, I don't know, for whatever purposes, they changed some things. So in the story that I saw was, and it was the, the and they obviously went into a lot of details. Pretty, it was pretty nerve wracking. The, the guy, the one brother was, um, he had mental health issues. He was spiraling out of control little by little, little by little. And he actually had killed the grandfather, the father, the mother, and the brother. But this one, this wasn't stepbrothers. And he, I mean, he, he, he eliminated the whole family. The, the grandmother had already passed, but he killed the, I mean, he started with the grandfather, then went to the, killed the, the, the brother, shot the brother in front of the father, then the father, then the mom tried to run and hide. Because, I'm sorry, the father told her to run. And she didn't. Because she was like, what do you mean? What do you mean? What do you mean? And he shot her. Um, I, I, I tell my wife, if I tell you to run, if I tell you to start the car, if I tell you to turn left with that much urgency, do not ask me why. Just do it. Okay? Because I just, just do it. And then ask me why. Do it. And after we get to safety, you can be like, what the hell were you thinking? Why would you, why, why'd you tell me that? And I'd be like, well, there was an axe wheelie maniac running out there. So I just needed to get out of the way. We just need to get out of here. And we're out of here. So we're good. Okay. Don't ask why. You waste a lot of time. And just don't ask why. Just do it. And then ask why. Okay. Uh, number five is Taylor Van Dyst. On October 31st, 2011, a pretty young zombie left her house. What? Oh, oh, it was, okay, Halloween. <laughs> I was like, what? On October 31st, 2011, a pretty young zombie left her house in Armstrong, British Columbia, looking forward to a night of fun. The zombie was Taylor Van Dyke, an 18-year-old student, and she was planning to meet up with her friends to go trick-or-treating. She never made the rendezvous. But before she went missing, she sent her friend a chilling text message saying that she thought someone was following her. It was the last anybody heard from her. Hours later, Taylor was found beside a railroad track. Her head was bleeding and there were bruises around her neck. She died in the hospital. The brutal murder shook the small town and community. The police were quick to nab a man named Matthew Forrester and who confessed uh, in tears after a two-hour interrogation. The exact details of the attack are hazy, even after the trial, but Forrester claimed that he only wanted to have sex with the girl. He said he'd follow her to a, a lonely part of town, then attacked her. She resisted, so Forrester grabbed her by the neck and pushed her to the ground. At that point, Forrester either bludgeoned her with a flashlight or bashed her head down with a metal pipe. He then left her in the dirt and fled to Ontario. Where police tracked him down. Forrester was convicted of first degree murder and received a life sentence. Guys, now look, let me talk to my fellow men here. You need to control your emotions, man. If you're that friggin' horny, okay? If you something, watch porn. This, you know, this is one of the things where I'm like, yo, I, you know, control your emotions, one. Okay? If you need, watch porn. 
jerk off or something, but don't, I mean, (laughs) why? I don't, I just, I just don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it. And it's not a thing where, oh, I can't get no girls. I'm not, you know, some people get a lot of girls. Some people are good with the ladies. Some people aren't. Some people are in the middle, whatever. But, you know, on your own time, there's no need for this, man. I, oh, my God. Oh, okay. Number four, the hanging woman. Let's see what this is. Video, I mean, uh, some audio here. What's well, audio for you? Part of Ohio already dealing with a possible serial killer has an answer to a separate but grisly murder. Investigators say Rebecca Cade was found, uh, was the woman who was found hanging from a chain link fence in Chillicothe. They say she tried running away from her attacker, who police have ID'd as Donnie Cochinauer Jr. when she got caught up in a fence. Officers say he beat Cade to death with a rock. Some neighbors thought it was a Halloween decoration at the time. Cade was 31 years old. So I want you to see uh, uh, if you've noticed something. The last three or two or four audio clips that I let you guys hear from the news. One thing they said, and even when I read it to you, one thing that you hear is, yeah, this is Halloween because these are Halloween um, murders or whatever, but that they sound or i'm sorry they look they don't look real they look like pranks they people think it's a prank or they don't look real they look at it and it looks like a doll it looks like a costume you know they're like you know the dead body this looks like a prop or a halloween prop or something and it, it, this brings this um something we were talking about a while ago me and some friends how when you when a person or even an animal passes away and whatever you may believe okay this isn't to get into a religious thing but the soul leaves that body or the energy or whatever you want to call it leaves the body how it it goes into a different type of animation it just doesn't look it like you don't see the life in it anymore you know you don't see the life in it um and I've heard this even from people who have, uh, who they've thought were dead, and then you, then, you know, after a while or whatever, you get a, pu- a pulse, and you see the that that they come back, how it, they reanimate, you could say, and people are hitting me up on Facebook. But anyway, so it says here for hours, motorists simply drove past the woman hanging from the tree. Sounds like the beginning of a horror story. I hate that. They saw her. She was hard to miss, dangling 4.5 meters, 15 feet from almost directly over the road. But considering the season, they just assumed it was another morbid decoration. It was four days before Halloween, and Frederica, Delaware, was littered with glowing jack-o'-lanterns, stuffed witches, and plastic skeletons. The body, however, was very real. Police were called to the scene after hours the woman was first seen, and it's likely that she had been hanging there all night. Police only revealed that the woman was 42 years old, and it looked like she'd hang, she'd hung herself or hanged herself. Whatever. There isn't the last. This isn't the last time a Halloween hanging has been disregarded as a decor. In 2015, a woman in Ohio was hanging from a fence for hours before anyone 
mustered up the curiosity to see whether or not she was actually a real person. Guess what I'm doing? Guess what I'm not doing? Guess what I don't do? Uh, I don't go. First of all, first of all, I, I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't kill anyone like this. No, I don't kill anyone at all. Not like this. I don't kill anyone at all. But I don't go to Halloween decorations. I don't walk up to. I never have. Like, I'm not. I'm not a curious person like that. Never. I'm, oh, what's that sound? Let me go see what that is. I'm not. I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. I just. I don't want to see it. You know what I mean? So this was number three. Rebecca, Re, Rebecca spelled really weird. R e b e k a h gay. Rebecca gay. So anyway, when he wasn't delivering sermons to the small congregation of his Michigan church, John White dreamed of necrophilia. Wow, let's make it weird off the bat. On a bedroom cold Halloween night in 2012. White took a mallet and a zip tie and went to the home of Rebecca Gay, his fiance's 24-year-old daughter. Rebecca lived alone with her three with a three-year-old son, and she happily let him let him inside. She, she trusted him. White often babysat her little boy, so it wasn't uncommon for him to stop by. But she wasn't expecting what came next. White bludgeoned her repeatedly with the mallet before wrapping the zip tie around her neck and tightening it. Then White stripped her down and carried her body into the woods behind the trailer. When he returned to the house, Rebecca's toddler son was still there, waiting while Rebecca's body grew cold out, grew cold out back. White calmly dressed her son in his Halloween costume and drove him over to his father's house. The body wasn't found for another 20 hours, and while police searched, White asked his congregation to pray for the woman. White was convicted and later committed suicide in prison, don't feel sorry, but the real horror of the story is perhaps that he'd that he'd ever been free at all. In nineteen eighty one, John White was twenty two and he and he tried to kill his neighbor, seventeen year old Teresa Etherton. White invited her into his basement, and while she was looking at a racetrack he'd built, White stabbed her in the back. Then he kissed her, smiled, and kept stabbing her. Teresa survived the attack with fifteen stab wounds, and White spent two years in prison. How didn't anybody know this? Well, this was eighty one, I guess. I, like, I'm doing, I'm doing background checks, kid. Forget all that. In ninety four, White struck again. This time, killing the woman he was having an affair with and leaving her body, her naked body, in the woods, but without evidence that he'd intended to kill her. Prosecutors could only convict White on manslaughter charges. By two thousand seven, he was again a free man, free to live his life. Free to become a minister and free to kill once more. I don't believe all that. That's this is what I'm talking about. This is what I'm talking about. Oh no, we can help them. No, don't don't be so mean. No, we can't be mean to them. These guys can get help. Yeah, this guy became a minister. Guess what he was doing? While well, he was a minister. Oh, well. Shirley Lynette Ledford, number two. On October 31st, 1979, 16-year-old Shirley Ledford was walking home from a party in the suburbs of Los Angeles when two kind men in a van offered to give her a ride. The next morning, a jogger discovered her mutilated body in an ivy bed on the front lawn of a residential home. It appeared to be a shocking random act of violence, but less than a month later, a tip from a former inmate 
put police on the trails of Roy Norris and Lawrence Bittaker, an electrician and a mechanic who lived in and worked in Los Angeles. It wasn't long before investigators discovered hundreds of photos of young girls, blood-stained work clothes, and chilling recorded tapes of women screaming and begging for mercy. The police had captured the toolbox killers. I remember these guys. A serial killing team that had abducted, tortured, and killed at least five teenage girls over the past few months. But the true barbarity of these two men torture team didn't come out until Roy Norris made a full confession of their murders. I remember this story. I don't think I covered it, but I remember it. Particularly gruesome was his description of what had happened after they coerced Shirley Ledford into their van that tragic Halloween evening. Bitterker was driving when they picked her up, and Norris offered her some weed, which she refused. Norris then got behind the wheel while Bitterker slid into the back with Shirley. For the next two hours, all Norris heard was screams, constant screams from the back, while Norris calmly uh, piloted them through the bustling streets of L.A. Bitterker beat her with his fist, broke her elbows with a sledgehammer, and sodomized her with a pair of pliers. Jesus Christ. All of it was recorded on, on a tape recorder. Finally, Norris pulled over and strangled Shirley with a coat hanger that he cinched shut with pliers. And the two dumped her body on a random front lawn. Apparently, Bittaker wanted to see the reaction of the newspapers. When the body was discovered, Bittaker received a death sentence and Norris received 45 years to life. Why did one receive a death sentence and one only 45 years? I guess the one that was driving. Let me see. Yeah, better go with driving. Yeah. So, number one, we'll get to number one now Lisa Ann French. Gerald Turner was not feeling well on Halloween night in 1973. He and his living girlfriend, Arlene Penn, had made plans to go to Arlene's mother's that night for dinner. When Arlene got home from work, though, Turner stopped her at her front door and urged her to go ahead without him. It was about 7 p.m., and Arlene shrugged it off and drove all the way to her mother's house before remembering that her mother wouldn't be home for nearly an hour. She went back home and wasted time downstairs with Turner for an hour, then went back out. When Arlene got home at 11 p.m., Turner was still up. She noticed that the blanket from their bed was crumbled up on the floor in the laundry room, but Arlene shrugged it off and went to bed. She didn't find out until later that the little girl from down the street had been killed in that same bed just hours earlier. Lisa Ann French left her house just before 6 p.m. dressed like a miniature hobo. Ragged jeans, a parker, and a battered felt hat. About an hour later, that is messed, that's a messed up uniform. <laughs> that's a me- I mean, a messed up costume. About an hour later, she made her way to Gerald Turner's house. The door was open. What happened next is unclear, but Turner got Lisa upstairs to his bedroom where he forced himself on her and then strangled her to death. Then I see the delight in your eyes turn to fear as I shut the door behind you. Gerald Turner later wrote in a letter he penned to prison to Lisa. The girl's body was found in a field on the outskirts of town three days after Halloween. The implications of the timeline are staggering. Had Turner already committed his heinous act when Arlene got home from work? Or was he still waiting for Lisa to come by? Had Arlene sat, um, had Arlene sat downstairs holding hands with a burgeoning killer. 
While his first victim grew cold upstairs or had Turner already put the body in a trash bag and dumped it, the jury couldn't have cared less. Turner was sentenced to 39 years in prison amid public outcry. He was released on parole in 98. There you go again. But he went back to prison in 2003 for a parole violation. He slated for he is slated for release in 2018, which is he's already released. So he's out there. He's out there because you know, we don't we don't punish people. We just say hey, just stay here for a while. Stay here. I mean, we know we know you're probably going to do it again. We get it. But just stay here for a while. It'd be it'd be inhumane for us to do anything that would really deter you. It'd be it'd be, it'd be dumb of it'd be crazy of us to kill you and prevent you from doing this again, knowing you're going to do this again to somebody else. It'd be crazy. I'm not saying we should kill anybody. I'm just saying, you know, I don't know. This is a very touchy thing, man. It just keeps getting worse and worse the more things we see. So, next week, most likely. That was number one, guys. That was the last one. Next week, I will most likely do a... um, I will do probably... What will I do? What will I do? What was I going to... I will I'll do maybe Ghost. I'm trying, trying to put together the new timeline for all this. So, I will do probably Ghost... Um, you know, Halloween things and Halloween, something that maybe has Halloween around it, around it. You know what I'm saying? Uh, so yeah, that's what I'm doing. And of course, don't forget to like, subscribe and follow me on the socials, man. I've got my social go to get vocal, get vocal. Let me. Tell you what my get vocal is so you can see me live. I'll go live up there. We'll talk about some stuff, you know. Get vocal, my page, or I don't know what they call it, page, or I don't know what they call it on get vocal, but it's c.f.m podcast. Um, so it's c.f.m podcast on get vocal. And if you go to um, my Twitter. For this particular podcast, for CFM underscore podcast for Conspiracy Fears and Mysteries, you will see it there. There just should be a link. You can find it on my, um, what you call that, on my uh, blah, 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 my timeline. I posted something there. I shared it. I've only done one broadcast, but the more people I get, I will do more, bro- more broadcasts. All right, and I could probably knock out two birds with one stone if I do a live broadcast or not to the podcast. Or I don't know. You guys let me know. Um, okay. And of course, on the uh, Instagram, I'm gonna try to put more nice pictures up on the Instagram. Uh, let's see. On the Instagram is and I always forget, I always forget, I always forget my name on the Instagram. Because I use it, but you know, c.f.mysteries. C dot F dot mysteries. I believe that's how you can find it. C dot F dot mysteries. And under my picture says mystery crime cigar. Again, I I mean, I watch, I look at Instagram, but it's not, you know what I mean? Like crazy. Um, YouTube has nothing to do with this channel, my YouTube, but 
I do reviews on YouTube. Like I just reviewed the microphone that I'm using right now. And you can go check that out. It's Ralphie Reviews, R-A-L-P-H-Y Reviews on the YouTube. That's where if you want to see, if you haven't seen me on Get Vocal and you just dying to see my hands because I use my hands a lot on the videos. You just, it's an overhead view or my face because I, sometimes my face comes out on the videos. I do talking head reviews. Then you go check that out. All right. But anyway, as always. Again, don't forget to like and subscribe, guys. Follow me on social media. And I will see you on the next smoke.